This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Audio Book Club for Monday, October 31st. Today we are going to discuss This Beautiful Life by Helen Schulman, a book that came out this year about a viral video which ruins the life, essentially, of two teenagers in a New York City prep school. I'm Hannah Rosen, editor of Double X. I'm joined here by Emily Bazelon, who covers law and is also an editor at Double X. Hi, Emily. Hey, Hannah. And Josh Levine, who is the executive editor of Slate. Hello. Who sometimes, rarely... Never talks about fiction critically and is proud to join us in Who his inaugural fiction. Sports, exactly. His inaugural way. fiction podcast. It's very exciting. Before we begin, I'm going to turn to Emily, who's going to tell us about our book for next month. We are going to read The Good Mother by Sue Miller, which came out in 1986. So I discovered it was having its 25th anniversary, a good excuse to revisit whether it deserved all the attention it got at the time, whether it's as haunting as I at least remember it. And Hannah and I are going to be joined for that podcast by Amy Bloom, a celebrated fiction writer. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Helen Schulman makes an interesting decision. She opens the novel with a very, very short chapter, which is about the viral video itself. She just describes the video. And I'm going to read you a tiny bit of that description. It is done by a 13-year-old girl. Apparently, the music in the background is Beyonce. I love to love you, baby. And she describes the image this way. Her short skirt swayed along with her round hips, a little roll of ivory fat nestled above the waistband. She wore a white tank top, which she took off, her hands quickly finding the cups of her black bra. Then she describes her unhooking the bra. And then the line that gets repeated is... She reached out for the little toy baseball bat, and the next part was hard to watch, even if you knew what was coming. Several things came up for me about this. Obviously, this is about a kind of strange, innocent sexuality. That's what that roll of fat is doing above her waistband. And then also, the way this affected us written down as opposed to visually, it, for me, did not have the kind of impact it should have because words and images work differently that way and also because she made the decision not to tell us at any moment in the book what she did with the baseball bat. Another thing about this passage is that the girl who makes the video isn't named. We don't find out until later that her name is Daisy. And I think that was obviously deliberate. She's being objectified in this video. But it meant for me that I was able to distance myself significantly from this initial description. Um, it's kind of And maybe that's there. the point. Maybe this right. is supposed to mimic the experience of watching a random person. She doesn't say how old she is in the beginning, too. So you don't yet know that this is a 13-year-old girl doing this. Now, Josh, you have any guesses why she didn't tell us what she did with the baseball bat? Do you think that's in order for us to use our own imagination and the looter we are, the more <laughs> Josh, <laughs> the further? Josh, really excited to answer this question on. I no, really seriously, why? I mean, opening. why not tell us? Do you think that's just like a novelist? <laughs> you know, is it her being discreet or is it the opposite where we're supposed to fill that in with the most 
horrible image we can imagine. Yeah, I think it's the latter. I personally thought that it was probably pretty obvious what she was doing with the baseball bat and that she just left it out to imply that it was kind of devastating and that to put it into words was actually unnecessary. And I thought it was really kind of attention-grabbing way to start. I didn't feel like you guys did, that it didn't have an impact. I felt like it was really strong. And it was interesting, you know, contrasted with the decision that she went, you know, maybe 50, 60 pages in the novel without getting to the incident in question, which was an interesting choice because you're sort of knowing what's going to happen and sort of waiting for the car crash, right? Yeah. And I guess what what it does is fix this image in your mind as the central image of the novel. Otherwise, you're just reading a kind of family drama. You're reading about a family. You're not really sure why. And this this visual image is supposed to sort of be the, the kind of pillar in your head. I think that's right. The other thing is that this book is very much about the perspective of the viewer of the video, mostly per- the perspective of Jake, who's the 16, 15-year-old boy who receives the video from Daisy. So the maker of this video turns out to be a girl at Jake's school who has a crush on him. And throughout the book, I felt like Helen Shulman was playing against my feminist tendencies to identify with the girl in the situation as the victim. And so we should talk about how that occurs later. But even from the very beginning, you're not Daisy making the video in this initial passage. You're an anonymous person watching the video. Right, right. Before we go much further, Emily, you want to just tell us who the Bergamots are and what kind of family they are? The parents are named Liz and Richard in this book. Their kids are Jake, who is a teenager, and Coco, who I think is a kindergartner and adopted from China. And this is a couple who, you know, meant to have an egalitarian upper middle class marriage, but somewhere along the way, Richard's career really blossomed and Liz's didn't. And so she's never been a full-time stay-at-home mother, but she's also never really had her own full-on career. She has a PhD and has kind of dabbled in teaching. And they raised their kids in Ithaca because Richard was at Cornell, but he's very ambitious and got an opportunity to come to Columbia in this major administration job that involves a lot of power. And the purpose of the job is also to renovate Manhattanville, the idea, which is true of Columbia. Actually, they don't actually call it Columbia. It has no, a fake they name don't call in the it. book, it but it's name. Columbia. At least that's what it seemed like to me. Anyway, so this university is going to take over some neighborhood, but do it in such a way that it actually benefits the people who live there, supposedly, as opposed to just a more classic, brutal example of urbanization and what's the word? I'm Crash looking? gentrification. Yes. yes, exactly. Yes. yes. So they've just moved to Manhattan. And I actually think that's a really key part of the book. This isn't their natural environment. Jake is at a new school. And there's a lot of pages in the book devoted to Liz's discomfort in this new, you know, to her, more social climbing, more plastic, artificial, uncomfortable world of Manhattan socialites because her kids, as part of this whole package deal, are going to fancy private schools. I thought yummy mummy was a British term. I didn't realize that we Americans use this term, I yummy I think we mummy. use MILF, actually. We use MILF. She was <laughs> describing that is the description she uses. There are a lot of uses. descriptions of women wearing yoga clothes. Yes, women wearing yoga I clothes. Totally I totally identified <laughs> with that one. I didn't know if she pushed it far enough, actually. I couldn't tell quite how posh they were. She could have been describing any school well, in Washington, one of them was as far having, as I could tell. Come on. One of them was having a birthday party for her six-year-old, a slumber party at the Plaza fancy... Hotel. At the Plaza Hotel, exactly. Like Eloise. Like Eloise. That's not, you know, 
Eloise. Anyway, Josh, did you think we were clearly supposed to identify with Liz and not Richard, like in the large lead up in the novel before we get to the event, which we will shortly? Did you feel like, you know, Liz was sympathetic, like Liz was, you know, we were supposed to be viewing this incident through the eyes of Liz and Richard was a sort of side Yeah, well, the book kind of shifts perspectives in different chapters, like you get the you know, perspective of Liz and Jake and Richard kind of alternately. And in the beginning of the book, when you're getting it from Liz's perspective before as a reader, you're aware that the switching is going to happen. I think when I was reading it, like, oh, we're just getting it from Liz's point of view. And, you know, Richard is being kind of presented as this two-dimensional, like, business he did. And I think even when you do switch perspectives to him, I would agree that generally she's remains kind of the strongest through line in the book. I found myself impatient with both grown-ups. I thought she did much better with teen dynamics, and I was always impatient to get back to the teen dynamics, not necessarily the video, but the parents both fell a little flat to me. Like Liz is a mom with not quite fully realized ambitions who's there among these posh mommies. Like I feel like that's just, you know, a stereotype I'm done with, like that right. mom on the outside of yummy mummy society, uh, you know. I agree. Whereas, and we've we've met that mom before in the yeah. ten year itch, and I don't know how she does it, and countless others. Whereas Jake, the parts of the book that were from his point of view, I loved. I felt like she got the voice of Jake, that kind of funny, you know, innocence, confusion, but also you know, kind of rank sexuality and super ego. Like they were all there yeah. in a way that I felt was completely having once been I, a teenage boy. <laughs> I totally agree with you guys. One of the first things oh, I wrote down. Oh, what's such a relief? I would have been <laughs> no. so crushed if you'd been like, "Oh my god!" No, no. So the, one wrong. of the first thing, one of the first things I wrote down here was that this setting of the book has been so overexplored. And one of the interesting things is, and I forget who makes this point, but I, I feel like one of the characters does that. This sort of incident could have happened anywhere. We're sending around a video, so Shulman's decision to set it in this Upper East Side locale seems unnecessary, and it also to me, it just seemed overly familiar and just kind of took away from the more interesting kind of meat of the book. Like I just got annoyed with the people just because I've seen so many of these folks before in movies and books. I would take that one step further. I actually think it was a mistake because I think when you set it in a posh New York City private school, you have raised the bar for what would yeah. shock them so high that you then have to make us believe that some video of a girl with a baseball bat is going to just like unravel their lives. Like right. I could imagine that would happen in a situation with more innocence in the air. But in a situation where you've got people, you know, I went to not a private private school, but I went to New York City schools. And now that I have my own children this in Washington- This would have been just like a Tuesday afternoon for you. <laughs> totally. I realized like that the innocence lost like happened much earlier for me than it will for my children. It's like they're New York City kids. I wanted us to talk about Jake and the events that lead up to the video, but I think there's also a dating issue in this book. So it takes place in 2003. That was actually really important to me when I figured that out because I felt like, I'm not sure this is right, but that this kind of incident would be much less likely now. That yes, yes. there are a lot of kids who still do incredibly stupid things online. It's relevant and I actually really want to give this book to my son. Not yet because he's only <laughs> 11, but at some point as a cautionary Don't tale. do this, dude. Exactly. <laughs> Stay away from the baseball bats in my case. Right? Exactly. And yet this particular act of stupidity seemed to me in this sophisticated environment didn't feel contemporary. So I think this it was I disagree smart. with. All right, wait, wait. Let's move on to that. But first, Josh, I want you to throw out there for our listeners about the Beyonce question. And we'll see if anybody can answer it for us before we move on to the what oh, yeah. happens with and the kids. And my like sort of 
I was reading this like in my kind of editor nonfiction mode. So I realized that, you know, fiction means it's not true. But there's some like fa- <laughs> there's some facts in here. And you wanted the, to feel authentic. <clears throat> yeah. And the uh, Beyonce album, the song that she's dancing to in this video that um, Hannah read from in the beginning of the book, it's called Naughty Girl. It came out as a single in 2004. The album itself came out June 22nd, 2003. But it's described as being the 2003, like, first half of the year Mm. school year. So I feel like we might be uh, having uh, a dating problem. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. You never know with Beyonce, like, release the single, you know, on MySpace or wherever people release singles in 2003. Oh, come on. Give Josh like, credit for his good cast. No, no. It's good. I'm just saying. We were playing with a few months here. And so, you know, right. she could have it's released true. it in April or May because it's clearly not freezing outside, as I pointed out. All right. Out. Let's it's talk not. about these so boys. Okay. So let's talk milieu. about the boys. Josh, who are the boys? Who are Jake and his friends? So Jake moved down from Ithaca, as you guys described. And he comes down and pretty much instantly has this crew. His best friend is this guy named Henry. And I thought their relationship was really described very well. And the fact that Henry kind of blessed him and allowed him to enter his group of friends and that Jake was very grateful for that. I think it was pretty knowing about how cliques work. Henry has this twin brother named James. Literary reference. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then there's also this guy, McHenry, and another guy named Django. And Davis was the last guy. And they're all a little bit blurry, but it's okay because we understand this gang of boys. I think that was – I mean, I think that's the thing she she did really well, just kind of the loose way and the spontaneous way these things happen and the kind of very idiosyncratic – connection between Henry and Jake, which my daughter has this too, so I totally identify it has to do with words. Like they get they they yeah. <laughs> they have like a word of the day, which is something I my daughter does too, like chinois I... and like these funny words that they attribute all these funny meanings <laughs> right. to it. Well I wrote good. I wrote this down because I thought it was the best phrase in the book when she said that words almost became their secret language. Mm. Right. I really like that. Right. And so we follow them around one Friday evening when they're looking for something to do. And the random quality of the teenage hanging out was also very well done. They could have ended up on Park Avenue. There's supposedly some part of Park Avenue where there are lots of teenagers. They could have ended up just playing video games at one of their own houses. But instead, they hear about this party that is in the town where their school is. And, and just so, so we set it up, because we'll come back to it, there are actually two parties and the mom ends up going with Coco to this party at the plaza, which is like a little girl's party. Uh, and Coco is this sort of gregarious, outgoing, the kind of girl, if you're a mom, you look at and be like, she's going to get in so much trouble when she's a teenager. And Jake is at this other party and he's kind—he's—he's of, he's like a cool but mellow dude, right? He's not a troublemaker, but he's not a super type A first child son either. You know, he's sort of somewhere in between. He's, he's a great fall. He seems to have a good heart. You know, he seems to be sort of stumbling through his life in a mostly honorable way. Until now. Dun, dun, dun. All right. So what happens at the party? Josh, has this happened to you at any party? The 13-year-old comes sits on your lap? Come on. Uh, <laughs> Not now. Anna is just intent on humiliating you. I think you should just decide it's going to happen. Hana, pick. Stop, stop that right now. So no, this You made is me not... talk once on a podcast about <laughs> David making me buy a cheerleader uniform. So this is my revenge. Yeah, I, don't, uh-huh. I don't recall the gun to your head in that situation. So yeah, they go to this party. Um, it, this has not happened to me. So I do not speak from experience. But and will this, not happen. Yeah, Jake, um, sort of important, I think thing that animates his evening is that he's like obsessed and in love with this girl 
Audrey. My uh, favorite character in the book by far, Audrey was. She's yes. just like, what's her name on Parks and Rec? Like, too cool for yes. school. Yes. <laughs> Aubrey She's Plaza. Great. She is. She would be played by Aubrey Plaza. That's true. So anyway. they're at this party. Jake says to one of his friends, eh, I think maybe I'll go home. But then Audrey comes up with her boyfriend, I think. Luke. Luke. And I think it's described as like Luke, like she's hanging on Luke like a koala bear or something. Right. And this gets him all agitated. So then he goes inside, has some drinks, and starts making out with this uh, 13-year-old And girl. then realizes he's made a big mistake. The 13-year-old, who is Daisy, basically tries to pull him upstairs. And he kind of comes out of his stupor long enough to realize that his friends are standing there, you know, kind of appalled that he's making out with someone who's so young and he actually they're not actually appalled they they no they sort of they fluctuate back and forth between egging him on making fun of him like that's one thing she does really well too is that the the teenager reaction to the sexuality is confused it's like you're horrible but you know give the lady what she wants you know there's sort of varied reactions to this scene but one of the boys says to him, she looks like jailbait to me, man. Right. And at that point, Jake decides that he's out of there, but he doesn't do it in any kind of gentlemanly way. He essentially gets up, pushes Daisy off his lap, and kind of freaks everybody out. It's not violence, but it's violent. It's like frustration. But let's – OK. Let's slowly break this down. For one thing, the decision to make Daisy the unqualified aggressor. She makes the first move, the second move, and the third move. I mean, she makes all the moves. She sits on his lap. She seems out of control. We know that her parents basically are rich people who neglect her. She seems like... Well, we don't quite know that yet, right? We sort of get that impression, I guess, because there's a party going on in her house. She's also described as wearing like a lot of makeup and looking like she was... I think it even says she looked like she was 11 years old. Right. And Jake says like, oh, she's wearing all this makeup. And he thought that she would have looked better if she... Didn't have that goo on her face. Right, right. And she says in echo of some porny kind of, you know, speak, she says, oh, your muscles are so big. And he knows that they're not, in fact, (laughs) so big. And so it actually backfires. (laughs) Yeah. And so the question of sort of girls and what girls do and what and and sort of the the prison Mm -hmm. that girls are in at this particular age comes up later in the book. But why, Emily, using some of your knowledge about bullying here and kind of bullying dynamics and viral videos and kids and bullying, what does it mean that she chooses to make the girl the aggressor and why does she do that? Well, I felt like Shulman knows that she's writing for a mostly female audience of moms like us who are Josh, we pulled you into this and you're not included in that characterization. And we're trained from, you know, our first feminist days to identify with the girl in this scenario. But this book is written from Jake's perspective and the perspective really of Jake's mother. And so I find myself, I think particularly because I'm the mother of two boys, finding it really hard to have any sympathy for Daisy whatsoever because of the way she's described. And I I both appreciated that move. Shulman Wait, was why making. did you have no sympathy for her? That's interesting. Why? Because she seemed like she was baiting Jake and kind of pushing him into a situation in which he was going to do something wrong. Now, I mean, I think that it's more nuanced than that because Shulman's also at several points in the book playing with this idea that we're not raising our kids right anymore. Jake's father thinks back to his own father's advice to him about how you're supposed to treat girls honorably with chivalry, with courtesy. And these old-fashioned words are not words that Liz and Richard use with Jake. They've been basically telling him to have safe sex 
which is perfectly clinical, but, you know, not laden with the same kind of code. And so in that sense, there's a critique going on of why Daisy has been left unprotected. But Wait, but it's even more complicated than that. I mean, that's what Audrey's there for. I mean, Audrey is there to show how hard it is for a girl to play in this theater. Like, what are the different possible roles that she can play? So Audrey at one point, you know, when Helen Schulman is editorializing heavily and Audrey walks away. And I think Audrey's word is chivalrous, right? That's the word she brings back. She says she then ironically distances herself from. But Audrey says, you know, she walked away from her youth and beauty to face her hard fought for isolation. In other words, how hard it was going to be in her life to resist the things that come along with being young and beautiful. It's hard to think of Daisy as purely an aggressor. She's a person who was, you know, born into a trap. I agree with all of that. I just found myself sympathizing with Jake. So he gets home on this night. He's drunk and then opens up his computer. Big mistake. And there's waiting for him is this video from Daisy, which he watches, is completely enthralled by because it's obviously completely over the top. And then he makes the enormous error of sending it to exactly one person, his friend Henry. This I have to Would say- Would you, is this an enormous error? Clearly. Wait, could you see it coming completely? Like you saw he said, hey, dude, check this out. That was like literally all he wrote, right? right. Which and, wouldn't yeah. anybody in the universe, I mean, you know, think back to your own boyhood, Josh, your high hormonal boyhood. Do you well, think I anybody think... would have not sent this to one friend? Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's totally expected from the beginning. It's like you see that gun and act one, you know, it's going to get shot in act three or or whatever. It's totally unsurprising. And I think Predetermined. That's, that's why you were uh, characterizing it as being more Daisy's fault, if we're going to talk in the language of blame. blame here, because it seemed like once the video was sent, then the outcome was inevitable. And I liked how Shulman didn't add any kind of foreshadowing or portentous language. All this the sentence was just like he forwarded it to Henry and then that right. was it. Like, Check this out. She That's didn't belabor the point at that point. And actually one thing I also really liked about the chain of forwarding that this begins is that it's all in the beginning people forwarding to one or two people. And this actually I do know from my other life as a journalist is very realistic. It's rare that you have someone who forces a girl to make a video like this and then deliberately sends it to the whole school. I mean that can happen. But what really happens is exactly this. One boy has something, can't resist, shows it to one or two more boys. Then they are slightly more removed from the situation. They forward it to one more. Then you're at a point where you're two or three steps away from the actual girl at the heart of this. And that's when you start being in danger of this widespread dissemination. And of course, once that happens, it's over. But to think again in terms of blame, the blame is really shared among many people in this situation. And yet Jake, as the original forwarder, is the one who it all comes crashing down on. So this is probably something that you are answering in your book. But legally speaking, is there a clear place for the blame? In other words, is it always the person who forwards the video? Or is part of your point that the legal system is too crude to handle? handle these situations in which blame is spread so diffusely. It really depends on the state at this point. There are some states that make clear that intent to harm is part of the statute. And then there's also a split between states which would deal with this as child pornography, even though the teenagers doing the forwarding are also minors. They would be prosecuted as purveyors of child porn. And then it can be that if you disseminate to one person, that's all it takes. And then there are other states that have tried to write statutes that are more clearly directed to situations like this and have also tried to put a kind of intent to harm aspect in the statute. And then Jake would have a better defense. 
It's so interesting to me because, okay, so there's the legal plane. And then in terms of the moral ethical plane, I fully did not identify with his parents' reaction to this. I felt like this is just freaking nuts. It's well, nuts that he's getting in trouble for forwarding a video and I just cannot come down on him at all. I just do not understand. The response, but what you Yeah, let me characterize the response. So the mother is fully supportive, you know, but he describes the mother as being supportive in that kind of mama grizzly way. Like she's always on my team. Like she's just mom's it for me and right now I'm psyched that she's <laughs> like mommy in a kind of harpyish way. Yeah. Yeah, like, she's just like on me like the mom, like she's going to defend me and protect me. You know, it's like the stay-at-home mom. And just right. demonizing the the girl who sent it to like a degree that's probably not warranted. And also having this kind of voyeuristic fascination with the video in front of Jake, which is kind of... I was really wishing she'd had an affair or something, like in the I don't know how she does it way, so I could get a better <laughs> glimpse into what her own frustrations were. Like she just kind of flattened out for me in the mid part of the novel and became like mom defender. I actually wrote down here, I appreciated that nobody in the book had an affair. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that would have been like a cliche, and I appreciate that it didn't Instead, we have her voyeuristically eavesdropping on some ex-boyfriend's blog, although then that disappears. And pretending to be a book agent. I couldn't stand that. I felt like womanhood <laughs> has has gone nowhere. Like, no. where is, like, fear of flying weed. and everything? It's like, do we get nothing? But, like, pretending to be a freaking book agent. That's what a lady <laughs> does when she's trapped in a marriage. Anyway, you know, Richard is clearly a more narrow person. He's been about his ambitions. He's kind of, like, sees himself as the breadwinner, and it comes out later. He feels he's made a deal in his marriage where he plays one role and Liz takes care of the children. And so he is actually frustrated with Jake. He's frustrated with him. Am I wrong to say that he thinks he's done something terrible? I mean, that, that he comes down hard on the boy? I No, I think that that's true at moments. I also think that Richard reflects back on his own childhood and he feels like his parents had more distance and perspective from what their kids were doing. And there was this passage that I actually really liked about this. We're in Richard's head and he says, Richard and Lizzie and the girl's parents, all the other parents at that school, they are both too close to their children and too far away from the ground. They are too accomplished. They have accumulated too much. They expect too much. They demand too much. They even love their kids too much. This love is crippling in its way. So wouldn't the natural outcome of that to distance yourself from the situation and say this is kid stuff, who cares? You know, just go through the legal business because you have to, but otherwise not give it the moral weight that then becomes crushing to this boy? But I think the parents in this situation can't do that. They're just incapable. It goes against all of their hyper-parenting mm-hmm. impulses. And so that's just not an option. Right. Well, for right. him, a lot of the impulse is that it's going to have a negative effect right. on his career. Right. And so he gets put on this administrative leave. So I think he's trying to deal with it from that perspective of like my family and career are in peril. And then you also get into the kind of New Yorky like arms race aspect where they're like, we're going to hire this fancy lawyer just because that's what people do. And then we're going to listen to the lawyer because the lawyer and the lawyer's out for blood and that's what lawyers do. So we're going to let the lawyer do his job. So there's that kind of escalation. But the part of the novel that read the most false to me of anything was the part that describes Richard watching the video and his like sort of inner thoughts, you know, when he's viewing it and saying like he's never been that honest and that true to himself as this girl is while she's like putting on this show for his child, and why could he? What did he, he mean by that? I wasn't like so that? sure what he it's meant. It's just like there's no universe in which like a dad who's watching a video of a 13 year old girl <laughs> performing this for his son is like going to have that reaction. That just felt very. But what do you think he meant? Because 
I read this as maybe some weird tenderness rising up in him. Some fatherly quality. Some fatherly some it, which which is very interesting that she should bring this up now. She writes, for all the video's dismal raunch, its tawdriness, for all its sexual immaturity and its unknowingness, there's something about the way this girl has revealed herself, the way that she's offered herself, truly stripped herself bare, that is brave and powerful and potent and ridiculous and self-immolating and completely nuts. It speaks to him. Is he crazy? He feels crazier at this moment than he has ever felt in his life. He feels touched by it. And then he says, Daisy makes herself completely vulnerable and open and 100 percent exposed. It also breaks Richard's heart. Has he himself ever been that undefended with someone he loved, with anyone? The answer is simply no. Richard has never had the courage. He hasn't known how. See, I felt like it was that last bit that went over the top. I'm not sure I'm right about this, but I could imagine a father of a daughter and seeing Daisy as his daughter and feeling this, you know, sense of anguish. Yeah, hearing it again, I agree with you. It's the second part that I feel like. Right. Like that he would identify back to himself. And she's sort of trying to reveal this, you know, empty gaping hole within the soul of Richard in this moment. But it's It's a part that screams like character development. It doesn't seem organic to me. Interesting. You know, reading it over again, this is the first legitimate explanation in the book for why they would get divorced for me. Because I will get to the end in a moment. I'd found it just massively They didn't get divorced. They got separated. But this idea that Richard, who's been set up as a beautiful person, I mean The photo on the cover of this book is a house of cards, and the implication being that they're posh, bourgeois, New York City life. I would just like to say that until this moment, I hadn't actually realized that. It's a house of cards. And, you know, Richard is the living representation of that. He is somebody who always looks good. He always looks made up. He is never disheveled. So this is the first indication we get that she can't touch him, that she can't get close to him, you know, that he listens patiently to her problems, but that Richard is unreachable because otherwise it makes no sense to me at all. They seem to have a very lovely marriage and it makes no sense to me why they would separate. So I guess maybe I'm disagreeing. I see it screams character development, but it's interesting and unexpected that a father would have this kind of reaction to this video. Yeah, it's a good point to raise, but I think that it's unrealistic that this would dredge up those feelings in him. Like maybe it should have been brought in at a different point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The kids at school, meanwhile, when Jake finally makes his way back to school after the lawyer solves his legal problems with the school, they're basically all over, you know, high-fiving Jake and wanting to see this video as this thing that, you know, obviously was inappropriate, but isn't something that Jake should feel responsible but for. But some of the kids are booing him, response. right? Like yes, some are hissing and booing. And then that awesome thing where the girl, like the girl is turned on by that. I thought that was very interesting to introduce just some random hottie New York City prep girl who never would have bothered with Jake, <laughs> bothered with Jake anytime is somehow turned on by this situation and takes him into the woods and gives him a blowjob. There's this was a pretty like, good discussion initially when he gets back to school of of the privacy implications. How are these kids supposed to think about this? Is is the problem that what Daisy did was wrong or that she took something that was so private and made it public? And even I thought the book did a good job of raising something I know Hannah and I have talked about before, which is once everything is out on the internet and our privacy standards erode and change, then is this embarrassing? Does it have the same power to ruin you? Well, do you feel like the way it's unfolded made sense to you, sort of the way it legally unfolded, the amount of time he was out of school, how he came back. I mean, it's it's fairly, you know, 
some yes, legal-minded questions. That but that all the... seemed to you, like, that's from all the bullying incidents that you have reported on, it seems to you organic and normal. Yeah. Way. I mean, this is sexting, not really bullying. It's like in the sexting slash sexual harassment arena of our youth cyber problems. <laughs> um, yes, our, our digital citizenship and ethics dilemmas, as uh, some people have taken to calling them. Yeah, I did think that it was realistic. It's a private school. They can do whatever they want. And they first seem like they're going to probably expel him, along with a bunch of his friends. And Daisy's parents seem inclined to sue. And then after a couple of weeks, everyone sort of takes a deep breath and thinks more rationally, I think, about how much blame there really is here. And what the lessons are to be learned. Okay, so let's move on to the larger resolution of the novel, not the immediate resolution, but the longer term resolution. Everything falls apart, essentially. It's the house of cards. It all falls apart. Even though Jake is back in school. Jake is back in school. And as far as we know, it's fine. And I wish the novel had ended there because I feel like she allowed some confusion to reign over what the teenagers had learned from this. There was no clear lesson. There were no clear villains. It was not clear who was destroyed and what the lesson that the girls had learned. You know, Audrey had clearly was on some path to independence and all her irony and uh, Aubrey Plaza-ness was going to sort of find her own path and Daisy, Daisy who was silenced actually at that point in the novel. She comes back briefly later. I thought that would have been better to have some resolution for Daisy at that moment and then Some slightly goodbye. confused resolution right, for right. Daisy. There was actually a great moment where Daisy's signing autographs right. and Jake and Daisy lock eyes and there's a really really great description. Her eyes were like gaping holes. She seemed like a like Ragged a sort of like, and raw, like two wounds that would never heal. And then she sticks out her tongue. That is my favorite part of her writing, right? Like how she gets, like you feel like that moment, the wounds that will never heal is going to take you into a kind of melodrama that you don't want to be in. And then she says she sticks out her tongue, which all feels true to the way a teenager might be. We kind of talked around the edges of this a little bit earlier, but the most interesting decision that Shulman made in writing this book was not to offer any of Daisy's perspective on anything. She's not given a chapter where she you know, gets to narrate it from her point of view. She does come back in as kind of the coda of the novel, but you just see these kind of, you know, portraits of her at various points, you know, a little bit off from the side. Like she's autographing kids bring her baseball bats to autograph because of the baseball bat in the video. And then you, you know, see her a little bit uh, later in the book. I guess, Emily, you talked about this earlier, but Hannah, what did you think of the decision not to offer any of her perspective at all. I mean, that is what happens is that who you are gets distorted by this one moment. So you become this mini celebrity who is known for the baseball bat incident. And so all we see of you is signing baseball bats, but we don't actually ever get to know who you are because you are completely overshadowed by this image, which is true to life. I mean, if I think of the Duke Fucklist woman who put out that Duke Fucklist of the many men that she had slept with at Duke, that's what she is. That's what she became. She'll have to live publicly, right? And so she has to kind of live that down for a long, long time. We do get a private moment with Daisy later in the book, but it's true. Daisy doesn't get to become anything else except the image. And if you think of how unforgiving high school is in that way, that felt exactly right to me. I was thinking about the kids in my class who, you know, were drug dealers, got suspended for selling pot. It wasn't all of who they were, but, you know, that was their rep. The counter argument is that you could have that perspective and you do have that perspective in the book. And then you could come in and have her kind of talk about what it it was like from her side. You wouldn't lose the fact that other people saw her in that way. And she's kind of the most interesting 
character in the book. And you could explore things like the double standard of him being able to go back to school and her having to transfer. And right. I mean, it was a very interesting decision, but it also kind of felt like an omission. Anything we learn about her is through chains of gossip. And so like a mom tells a mom, tells another mom about who Daisy's mother is and how Daisy's mom never wanted to have a child in the first place and never really took care of her. But we learn that third and fourth hand. Like clearly Daisy's just a, Except a figment for the, of gossip. Except for the bookends for the book. The first is the video scene. And then the very last scene of the book is Daisy as a 20-something having a fancy internship at Goldman Sachs, I think. I found this ending to be not enough of Daisy as a real person. Daisy runs into someone from the high school who recognizes her and tosses off this incident. She says, oh, it was kind of humorous, which seems like such an understatement. Now, of course, she's protecting herself, but even at the very end, all we get was this idea that she has a dream in which Jake apologized which you can completely imagine her wanting him to apologize. I was glad to know that. But I felt like there should have been more here, that Shulman allows Daisy to remain this kind of shallow, two-dimensional figure throughout, and that at least in this ending, we should have gotten a fuller realization of a real human being. And this was why I felt like the book was letting me get away with identifying as a reader only as like in my mother bear way, as opposed to also reminding me that there is a reason that we're supposed to worry about the girls in these situations, too. But it was also a funny false feminist moment to me. Like, why should Jake apologize? She All this time, that's the conclusion she's come to, that Jake should apologize to her? Like, she should apologize to Jake? Like, why does he apologize to her? Well, the book definitely ends on this moment that it's Jake who has done something wrong. Because Liz has the final closing thought, too, that her mistake was not to basically come down on Jake for this in some way. And I I don't know. I mean, on the merits, yes, Daisy bears some responsibility. And you're right to just simply think of herself as wrong seems to diminish her own agency plus just be off. But I thought Jake did do something wrong, even though it was totally understandable for him to forward this to one friend. I mean, that is an incredibly dangerous and stupid thing to do in the internet era, and we should but teach he, our Jake sons didn't not go to, to law school. Like, what? how would he know that? Like, I who wouldn't that, be? You but know? he was exposing this person who this was meant for him as like raw and sexual and mm-hmm. performative as it was. It was not meant to be public art, public. Well, that's why striptease. I think the two thousand three ness of this is kind of important. We're all more naive. Yeah, right. I think you're right. Even if we're not 15-year-olds, you know, if this was 2010 or 2011, we might be more sophisticated. I don't agree with what you said earlier about how this would be less likely to happen now because I think we read about these sorts of incidents all the time. But I think it was realistic that this would be more of a big deal back then and that there would just be less thought put into it initially. And maybe it's an impulse thing, too. You know, teenagers and impulse control and the fact that he shoved Daisy off him was a precursor to what then was much easier right, thing which to do, will which is just to press forward. Yes. Side-led rant about the teenage brain, which right. we know the prefrontal cortex isn't as developed. That's where impulse control and executive function comes from. And so there is a way in which Shulman is showing that. And, of course, the internet moment where you push send and in one second you do something with enormous ramifications totally plays into that neurological weakness. Right. And like Emily Bazelon's story about Facebook and young children, I guess this is part of the point is that no technology is not the evil here, but that you you do have to be really thoughtful about how 
young children and their only slightly developed sense of moral agency interacts with something that is so easy and in which so much harm can be done in such a teeny amount of time. Right. There's a good line from one of Jake's teachers when he gets back to school. The teacher says, you kids are just kids, kids on steroids. The technology put you all on steroids. Right. Something like that. What about what happens to Jake, whose life is Who ruined? Whose life falls apart. I thought it was completely out of nowhere. I was really surprised and dismayed by it. So the idea is that 10 years, maybe 12 years after this incident, he has been allowed back to school. And in fact, he was accepted to college at Princeton, which is Richard's alma mater, but that he's dropped out of Princeton and essentially his life is falling apart and he's sleeping on his mom's couch and she's lost all sense of connection to him and patience with him. And it was super depressing. And I, I felt like it was a meteor that appeared in the book. Right. From nowhere. And I, I, I was completely irritated by and it. And you also didn't buy the separation? No. There is no way a couple like that would get separated. Their conflict was incredibly superficial. Like, otherwise, they had, you know, beautiful communication. They sat on the porch in the breezy porch and, <laughs> you know, spoke to each other. They seemed to have sex. You know, he seemed to be protective of her. Like, if you, if you had the check mark of what keeps a couple together, like a mild understanding about the breadwinner and roles in a moment of crisis, like not a legitimate, you know, precursor to divorce. But then you just don't buy Liz's existential dilemma because there's this moment late in the book where she says to Richard, it's just that this beautiful life, hark the book title, <laughs> I can't manage it. You work so hard to build it, but I can't manage it and I don't want it. And so you have to really believe that she's rejecting the whole life they've built together. I also didn't really. Okay, so get a job lady like I mean it's just like there are ways out of that dilemma except like leave your life leave your husband I mean you know that that if she that had in Ann Arbor I mean if that hadn't been coupled with that thing where she asked him oh are you going to become a Republican now like that was pretty childish right like it seemed to me the way that this couple has been presented to us the natural next step would be for them to sit down and have a conversation oh honey do you really not want me to do this should we go back to academia like they I don't know there was nothing that prepared me for this total lack of communication and breakdown down between them, nor for the total breakdown of Jake, which seemed insane and ridiculous. Even if we had had some interim scene in which he took on the full responsibility of the dissolution of his parents' marriage, like one chapter in there in which, you know, it worms its way into his head, the not the way. viral incident, not the video incident, but the fact that he has somehow caused, you know, the kind of question of parenting and kind of who's responsible. Did the child destroy the parents' marriage? Did the parents destroy the child? Like, if that question question had been more fully explored somewhere towards the end, I think I, I could have swallowed so did, it. Did you guys think that we were supposed to believe that this was an event that was maybe not a huge deal in and of itself and that it exposed these kind of fissures in these people's lives? Or are we supposed to believe that this was actually like a traumatic event and without this video being, you know, pushed into these people's lives, that they would have settled into New York. Jake would have gone along. Liz would have been fine. Richard would have redeveloped Manhattanville. Like, do you feel like Shulman is making an argument either way? That's a great That's philosophical a great question. question. I think I choose A. No, A was the one. <laughs> a was the, the one. Fishers, this was I think the Fishers anyway. didn't exist. I think, in other words, they would have lived a good life in Manhattan if this hadn't happened. That's the argument she's making. She sets them up as a, as a decent couple and a decent boy who are trapped in circumstances, and because of those circumstances, their life falls apart. At the same time, though, if she wasn't making a point that there was this 
something rotten at the core about their beautiful life, then this incident wouldn't have had the power, shouldn't have had the power to unravel them. Right. And I guess the fact that she has the House of Cards on the cover, the House of Cards (laughs) is not a reference back to the viral video. The House of Cards is a reference back to this beautiful life. The title, it's a reference back to the falseness of their New York life. And I think your perspective there is in line with your belief that these uh, supposed problems in their marriage that break them apart are things that would not break apart a marriage. Right. Don't we also have to quickly mention Coco's dance here? Because one of the other supposedly revelatory moments in the book is that the five-year-old daughter who has been, I couldn't believe this, but supposedly watching this video of Daisy on her mother's computer because Liz and Richard were too addled to Well, the mom was smoking pot. It's like the equivalent of like... In Dragnet, when the parents are smoking pot, the kid drowns in the bathtub. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Exactly. You're right. So Coco watches this dance and then mimics it in the ladies' room at her school in front of all the other girls. And for Liz, this is the ultimate moment in which she has betrayed her whole own sense of motherhood, that her daughter would be doing this. And I think that's the minute she decides she has to get the hell out of Manhattan. Right, right. City of sin. Right, the city of sin. Yeah, it didn't seem like it. Maybe I'm a bad parent. And it didn't seem like it was like, all right, like Coco was going that way anyway. Like, <laughs> I can't wait to see the dances that your three year old is going to be Luckily doing. My kids are so dorky. They're not ever going uh, to be attracted true. to such videos. Anyway. Um, okay. Well, let's close off there with the Coco video. Thank you, Emily and Josh, for joining me today. This is Hannah signing off. Thank you to Abdul for engineering this podcast and to Andy Bowers, who's our executive editor. Please join us next month for The Good Mother. 